Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns or an organisation driving change in the community, Dunn Street develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organise them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out how Dunn Street can partner with you, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Welcome to episode number 12 of Socially Democratic, a weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. Um, a big shout out to Paul Tolich in New Zealand, who listens to the podcast quite regularly. Uh, Tolly um, is an old friend of uh, myself and uh, some good Labour people over in New Zealand. We've had a bit of time uh, working on some campaigns and I was actually speaking to Tolly just recently and I thought I'd give him a bit of a shout out because he's, uh, he's a good man. Um, let's uh, talk about today's episode. We've got uh, Senator Anthony Chisholm on today's podcast. He is in Melbourne for a forum with the Mayor of Townsville uh, to talk about Queensland and the uh, impact that the state has had on recent federal elections and the challenges that Labor has had in that state. And so we thought whilst Anthony was down that we'd get him on the podcast and sort of have a bit of a deep dive on all things Queensland. So it was a great uh, podcast to uh, have with uh, the Senator. Also, thanks to all the great feedback we got from last week's episode, which was with Richard Angel, who came on the podcast. He was actually on the phone from London to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism inside the Labor Party. Uh, and how the Labor Party is uh, handling it, or not handling it that well, to be frank. Uh, So it was great uh, to have Richard on the show last week, and we uh, got some really good feedback from listeners about that episode. Don't forget that the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favourite podcast app. And if you're an Apple podcast uh, user, please give us a rating and leave a review for the podcast. It helps us just bump up our numbers. Um, We are now news and noteworthy on the Apple podcast um, ratings. And that's all down to you guys. So we really appreciate uh, your support of the podcast. And also, if you want to follow us, don't forget, you can follow us uh, all on the Dunn Street um, social media um, handles like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And LinkedIn. So let's get to today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic. We are taping this one on a Friday afternoon in downtown Melbourne and joining us in the studio is uh, Senator Anthony Chisholm all the way down from sunny Queensland. Senator, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you, and uh, good to be out of Canberra in Melbourne for a day. Uh, the I need to uh, blame you for something. In 2012, up until that point, I had an unbeaten marginal seat campaign record, and then I got sent to Queensland to work on the campaign up in Cairns. I got given uh, Barron River, Cairns, and Mulgrave, and my my record was obliterated over the space of uh, two months. And I hold you responsible for that. Well, I've, I've sort of built a career uh, not being responsible for that, Stephen. But um, the thing that I think you'll appreciate from campaigning is that you actually learn more from a loss than you do from a win. And I know that I learnt substantially from that experience. And uh, it 
put me in much better stead when I ran the 2015 election campaign. And then as a senator, I think those experiences that I've learned from going through tough times after an election loss are particularly relevant at the moment for federal Labor after losing what was you know, an unexpected election. So uh, I think there's some good lessons from 2012 in terms of how we recover, but also understanding that you know, Queensland Labor returned to government in three years' time, which was pretty remarkable. And you know, whilst it's easy to be pessimistic after the federal election, I've got no doubt that the next election is eminently winnable, particularly if we learn the lessons from what happened a couple of months ago. Uh, you put that very well, yes, that, and that is true. Uh, I can't, you can't go through life, just keep on winning elections after elections after elections. Um, and you're down in Melbourne today to speak at a, uh, an event organised by the McKell Institute, uh, along with the Mayor of Townsville, Jenny Hill, uh, to talk about the most recent uh, federal election through the lens of uh, the lived experiences of Queensland voters. Um, and so that's why we've got you on the podcast today to talk a bit about that. Um, and I just want to get your uh, overall thoughts of the, the campaign from a national perspective before we sort of deep dive into uh, into Queensland politics um, and get your sense of what what did you think about going into that election campaign? I mean, I know that, you know, none of us, certainly from a... And this was my first campaign that I'd not been involved in, so I was the first time I'd experienced it just as a rank-and-file member of the party. Um, your expectations going into that election campaign... Yeah, obviously there was a strong expectation that Labor was going to win. I think that that was based off uh, the results in the by-elections and obviously the one that was particularly relevant to me was in Longman in Queensland where we were able to get across the line there and, and what ended up being a, a pretty healthy margin. So I think following that, any sort of doubts that were there uh, didn't exist once we got through those by-elections and I still, uh, anyone who's been a campaign director, you're always pretty pessimistic about elections uh, because you always get nervous, you always think about the risk. But obviously, the consistent published national polls uh, showed you that that was going to be the case. My hunch was always that the election was going to be based on winning more seats outside of Queensland than in Queensland. We had a lot of marginal seats there, but I just got the sense that the, with the regional challenges that we faced and the economic conditions that we weren't going to win a lot of seats in Queensland. Having said that, I still thought we would pick up a couple uh, and we'd play more of a role in a national victory. Um, but obviously that wasn't the case. But we didn't really have great results uh, across the country and went backwards in Tasmania as well. So it was particularly disappointing. And I think the shock of not expecting it, sort of when you know that you're more than likely to lose, you can prepare where I think this time it was just the not expecting it and then getting that result. I think it is going to take the party a bit of time to adjust and reconcile with that fact. But having said that, and I've said this publicly as well, we can't allow ourselves to sort of drag our asses around and wallow in an election loss. The people who rely on Labor governments and the Labor Party to stand up for them, they need us out there fighting for them, taking the fight up to the government and... Under Anthony Albanese so far, I think that we've we've shown the signs that that is indeed what we're going to do, and I think that's what the Australian public would expect of us as well. At a national level, certainly not at a state level, but at a national level, Labor, federal Labor has won one outright federal election out of the past nine. If we were, if that, if federal Labor was a hitter in a baseball team, their batting average would be 111 which uh, isn't great. I don't think they'd even get a game with the San Diego Padres. I say that to, as a sledge to Ben Foster. 
um, who was a massive uh, Padres fan, but uh, it doesn't speak for great records over over the past uh, 23 years of federal election campaign history. Uh, how significant is that a problem? Like, is it a case of, you know, if you had a glass half full kind of view of the world, are we in the wilderness right now federally? Or if you're a glass half, uh, sorry, glass half empty, are we in the wilderness and a glass half full? Is it a case of we have been very close over a couple of these elections but just not being able to nip uh, those marginal results where needed to form government? Yeah, I always try and be optimistic and, and thinking about the last election result, whilst it was extremely disappointing, we actually aren't that far from government. I think we went backwards one or two uh, Morrison went ahead one, but he's sort of being treated as a genius and we're being treated as, yeah, right. as, as uh, you know, a party that are you know, a million miles from government. So uh, I think the truth is somewhere in between that. But I think that from a Queensland point of view that you know, basically for, you know, since 1996 when we went back to two seats when Keating lost, uh, we've basically hovered around six out of high 20s. It's now six out of 30. Uh, the only exception to that was Kevin Rudd in 2007 when we went to um, 15 out of 29 at that, at that stage, which you know, is only the only time in, in, in the last 23 years that we've been able to achieve that. So I think, and, and I went through this with the McHale Forum today, that Hawke was basically able to achieve a majority out of Queensland at every election, which is pretty remarkable mm. and shows you what a genius Hawke was politically and what a giant he was from a government point of view. So I think, I think it's fair to say that um, we have been in the doldrums. I don't know if that's as far as the wilderness, the doldrums, um, but I, I'd say the doldrums. But I certainly am optimistic that, that you know, we can learn the lessons from the last election result. I think that it will get us to reassess the way we position ourselves, and I'm particularly attuned to that, having worked on Kevin Rudd's election in 2007 when we did do well in Queensland. Obviously, a key part of that was him being a Queenslander, but I also think the fundamentals about the way he positioned his campaign uh, in the lead-up to the election gave us a much more fundamental starting point to do well in Queensland than what we had this time. You've uh, given some good historical context to the success that Labor has had federally uh, in Queensland as far back as the Hawke years, um, which is a, a useful uh, way to then dive into what has happened in, say, the last two elections um, and in, in Queensland. And what I want to sort of get a sense from you for our listeners, particularly the people who listen to the podcast that aren't from Queensland, uh, talk us through uh, the, the two seats that we, we dropped most recently uh, to the, the LNP was Herbert and Longman. Give us a sense of the voter characteristics of one of those seats and even look at maybe some of the towns and the people that live within those seats and their attitudes to life and what politics means to them and what they're seeking from their elected representatives. Yeah, sure. I'll start with Longman because I've now moved my electorate office out to Strathpine, which is in Dixon, so neighbouring with Longman, so an area that I intend on spending a fair bit of time on over the next... Uh, the next couple of years. And I certainly think that Longman is one seat that we can win back at the next election. I think it's it's one that, that is on a reasonably thin margin and that we'll be targeting heavily. Uh, it certainly is an outer suburban electorate, so there's a strong commuter belt. So a lot of people who would live in the key township of Caboolture um, would travel to Brisbane by, 
by for work. They'd more than likely travel on the train. Um, the traffic along the highway is a big issue, so there'd be people... Um, it's basically between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast, so the highway, the Bruce Highway, that basically snakes through there um, is a big talking point, so it's always a constant pressure as the population builds up in that part of the world uh, to ensure that infrastructure demand is kept up with that. Uh, and then there's the, the island of Bribey, which is uh, about 20 minutes to the east of Caboolture, and there's a, a really uh, high contingent of retirees. There'd be a lot of self-funded retirees uh, in that part of the world. So a really diverse electorate and there'd be you know, reasonably high unemployment, a, a, a fair bit of welfare dependency through the electorate at the same time. So quite low socioeconomic demographics. I think the interesting thing is is that we did so well there during the by-election campaign whilst Turnbull was still the Prime Minister. And I think that Turnbull really masked a lot of the inefficiencies in the Labor agenda that we took to the election in that people were so thought Turnbull was so arrogant, um, the, thought he represented the top end of town, thought he represented Sydney and Melbourne. He really struggled in outer suburbia and regional Queensland. Mm. And I think that's why we did so well in parts of Queensland in 2016, because Turnbull was a real turnoff and his agenda was a real turnoff. So I think whilst Turnbull was there, we were able to get a good result in the by-election because it really was a referendum on Turnbull and it didn't really swing into a choice about the Labor agenda and, and I think particularly some of the, the campaigning around retiree tax, franking credits, uh, dividend imputation, et cetera, really, really uh, was a factor at the end of the day in that election result in Caboolture. And the, the little bit of research that we've started as part of the review process, as you know, Stephen, I'm, I'm on the review panel, is that in broad terms that... Um, the swings to us were in the higher socioeconomic status. Um, the swings against us were in the lower socioeconomic status. And if you think about our agenda, it was designed... The, the, the people it was designed to help were the ones who voted against us. And I think Caboolture is a classic example of that. Yep. I think Herbert is, is different. So Herbert's based on Townsville and is basically now just a Townsville-based seat because the, there's been a bit of population growth there. And the, the difference up there is the resource issues um, were a significant factor. So Townsville's been economically depressed now for a significant period. Um, there is the issue of Clive Palmer closing the Queensland nickel refinery there. Um, so that had a, a devastating effect on the local economy, a loss of, of you know, hundreds of jobs um, that they haven't been able to recover from. And I think that Labor just found itself on the wrong side of those cultural issues there, particularly when it came to resource projects. So Adani is seen as a bit of a lifeblood for Townsville. They've got a head office there that already employs a substantial number of people. And if the mine goes ahead, a substantial part of the workforce will come from the Townsville area. So Labor's position on Adani, which I think at best you would describe as sitting on the fence... Mm. Uh, really, I think people in Townsville, despite having a sitting member there, just didn't think we were on their side and we suffered uh, you know, at the election where our primary vote dropped you know, from what was already a pretty low primary anyway. Um, but it was a really toxic anti-Labor environment in regional Queensland and a place like Townsville where there was a lot of... You, know, you had Fraser Anning, you had Palmer, you had Hanson, plus you had the LNP and all of them were campaigning against Bill Shorten and the Labor Party, so it was pretty tough going up there. Let's talk about that. Uh, and, look, you know, the Adani mine issue is 
such an interesting and such complex issue because obviously the view from people, my experience down here in Victoria and during the the 2017 Northcote by-election, a state election issue, uh, it was all about Labor's Adani mine, which is fascinating to consider. The Greens, it was a, it was a Green Labor contest in, in Northcote and it was about a prospective mine in a state that is completely on the side of the country and it, it was Labor's mine. Um, so we come, Victorians come to this mine from that standpoint about renewables and climate change and, um, and, and, and the environment. But then you get on an aeroplane and then you fly to North Queensland and you talk about the things that you just mentioned here about how people are so reliant on this, these industries. Hmm. Um, it's difficult for Labor at a national level to reconcile these competing interests that happen and the Labor Party is and has always been a broad church and it continues actually to get broader. Hmm. Um, in the uh, presentation you, you just get delivered before at, um, from the McCall Institute, you were talking about governing for everyone. How does Labor manage to achieve that when there's such a when when it is so difficult to strike a commonality between the views of left wing inner city progressives down in Melbourne and probably across other cities as well, and the good people up in North Queensland? Yeah, look, there's there's no doubt it's becoming harder, and I think the expectations of one leader, you know, whether it be Bill Shorten or you know, Anthony Albanese as the leader of the Labor Party being able to do that, it, it just can't be done. The, the country is so diverse and so divided now that you can't expect people to do it. So I, one thing that I'm passionate about and I think that we'll, we'll learn the lesson from the election campaign is, like what we've done in inner city and, and you've played a part in this, is that the Labor Party have been much better able to find a model that can work in terms of running the right types of candidates and campaigning on the right issues to ensure that those people understand the importance of a Labor government and the role that their member can play as part of a Labor caucus to ensure that there's a Labor government that they can have faith and believe that it will be doing the right thing by them. And I think that there's a similar case in regional Australia and particular regional Queensland that we can do that as well, where we have people who share the beliefs and values of regional Queensland. They do it in the context of a Labor manifesto, but they do it in a way that regional Queensland understands. Mm. I think where the challenge is, and this is the, the short-term challenge, is that the economic circumstances that present itself, particularly in regional areas and regional Queensland, are quite dire. So places in like Townsville, the other place that I like to talk about is Bowen, um, which is in the Federal electorate of Dawson that I spend a bit of time in. And the economic circumstances in those towns is they don't really want to see a Labor Party talking about a brighter future in 5, 10 or 15 years' time. They need a brighter future tomorrow. Mm. And that is where the issue like the Adani coal mine comes into it because, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that Labor has the right long-term policies that will ensure these communities are better off in 10, 20 years' time for generations to come. But they need short-term help. And the only short-term help on the radar at the moment is the Adani coal mine. Uh, and, for instance, in Bowen, uh, they've got the Abbott Point coal terminal, which is already owned by the Adani company. So if the mine were to go ahead, um, the coal would go through. So there's already probably 100 people working at the port there. Um, they'd probably get the maintenance contract for the coal train. So there'd be another factor, uh, another warehouse. There'd be you know, 10, 20, 30 people working there. They wouldn't actually have many people working at the mine 
But you've got to understand the mindset of someone like Bowen. For them, 10, 20 or 30 jobs is, is everything. Mm. Like that is a substantial, a substantial happening because you know, there isn't anyone else there who's proposing to build, uh, to build anything or do anything. So if you turned up in Bowen and said you're going to create one job, they'd chair you down the main street um, because they'd see, they see that as important and contributing to their economic future. So I think that's where <clears throat> we left ourselves vulnerable in the election campaign is that we had the long-term vision that, that I think um, was the correct one and that, that we could have convinced the Australian people on, but we left ourselves vulnerable to short-term politics, particularly in regional areas, particularly facing tough economic conditions. And the LNP ran a really effective scare campaign through that part of the world um, by basically saying that Labor want to shut your towns down. Uh, and you know, there's no point having a better hospital or a better school if your town doesn't exist. And that's basically what the, de what the decision was in, in regional Queensland, uh, and particularly from Gladstone up to Townsville, where we, we suffered a, a devastating shock to our primary vote. The state, if you look at the statistics of um, how federal Labor have performed, and you've alluded to some of that already in Queensland over the course of the last 20, 30 years, but at a state level, since 1989, since the very first Wayne Goss government was elected, um, state... Queensland Labor has done a remarkable job. Was it 27 out of 30 years that they've been in power there? Mm. Um, how was that a different story? Yeah, I think a lot of the credit on that needs to go to Wayne Goss, uh, who was just a phenomenal politician and, and you know, someone that I just have enormous regard for uh, as I got to know him uh, later in life after he'd left politics and, and sadly passed away now. But after what the state had gone through for 32 years of conservative rule and then having that new broom of Wayne Goss come through where he really modernised the state. You, know, you, you just can't underestimate what he did in a short amount of time, the six years he was in government. But Such as? Fair election boundaries, um, uh, a, a, a crime and misconduct commission that ensure that, um, that the police um, were, were cracked down on, ensure that there was uh, fair electoral boundaries... Uh, that um, that hospitals and schools were properly properly funded, uh, that the environment was treated with the respect that it deserved, uh, and basically he just bought good governance that the other parts of the country had come to accept. He he bought it to Queensland, and I think that legacy has been the one that has lasted for the Beattie and Bligh governments and is the current. I know how much Anastasia, the current premier, looked up to Wayne Goss. Um, a government her father served in as well. So I think that we owe a lot to the Goss legacy as being the model. And basically what it is, is it's, it's about social progress, um, but done with a, with a conservative economic management. That is something that resonates for Queensland and also a government that governs for all of Queensland. So you can't win elections in Queensland unless you win seats throughout the whole state. And that's certainly been the model that as the, the Queensland Labor Party has based... Yeah, I think, I think it's 26 out of 30 years uh, and it's coming up to the 30th anniversary of Wayne Goss on December 2 this year. Um, that's an interesting point. It's something I did learn in my experience campaigning up in uh, far north Queensland and it was made quite clear to me to uh, the citizens of Cairns that we are not north Queenslanders, we are far north Queenslanders. There's a real divide that maybe a lot of uh, southerners don't really know about in terms of the, the, the regional, regionality of Queensland. Do you want to sort of touch on that a bit and how does that impact on the way that you would run a campaign? Yeah, it is a really big challenge and I think it, it sort of 
the, the Queensland campaign experience puts the federal context in good perspective as well because uh, you know, the federally we're so different and the Queensland state elections are so different. So uh, I think a great example is that the Adani issue, for instance, you know, is one that uh, is the pro project is very popular in Townsville, uh, yet you go a few hours further north in Cairns and there'd be strong opposition to Adani in Cairns and that's only a few hours away. Mm. Uh, then you come to the parochialism of uh, Cairns, Townsville, Mackay, Rocky, etc., where uh, they think that everything that gets done happens in southeast Queensland or Sydney and Melbourne. But then there's also the competition between Sid uh, Townsville and Cairns as well, where yeah. um, they're always fighting to be the capital of the north. So it is it is a constant challenge for any government to ensure that they have strong representation from those areas and that they're listening and delivering for those communities. The great thing for the Labor Party is that we've elected some really great members of parliament and we've had um, treasurers, we've had deputies uh, out of regional Queensland that have formed part of the government. So it's been really clear to the people of Queensland that state governments have operated for everyone. And I think that's part of my reasoning federally about you know, having personalities in these places that are speaking up for their region so that those people in those towns can identify and go, well, I mightn't agree with the Labor Party on everything, but I know that I've got Joel Fitzgibbon there who is really articulating um, his support for the coal industry and I can see that he's going to be representing my interests. And I think a similar thing with someone like Jed Carney here in uh, the seat of Cooper, I think it is now, isn't it? Uh, and I think that, yeah, I think similarly, people in inner city Melbourne would go, well, gee, it's fantastic that we've got Jed who's in the Labor caucus and she's, act, you know, she's, she's articulating support for issues that I care about. And I think that, yeah, as you said, the, the old broad church terminology, uh, there's no doubt that the Labor Party can thrive under that. We know how to do it because we've still got that common objective of where we want the country to go, but we've got people coming from diverse walks of life and diverse regions that can bring that together and, and deliver as part of a functioning Labor government into the future. I feel that there could be an argument made uh, in defence of Queensland that Queenslanders and the state in general during this campaign came in for a lot of unnecessary stick. Yes, OK, the statistics, as you've even pointed out, less than 50% of the seats delivered to the Labor caucus are from the state of Queensland and it is our third most populous state and so therefore we need to do better. This is correct. But if you look at the statistics right across the board, there really wasn't a lot of movement to Labor in this most recent May election. In fact, we lost as many seats in Tasmania as we did in Queensland. One would argue, why isn't Tasmania coming in for a bit of shit right now? Is it a case that we just actually had a really shit campaign across the board? And that's the reason why we lost the election. But if we'd run a reasonably good campaign across the board, then there is movement to Labor in all the seats we need and therefore we form government. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is a fair bit of truth to that. Uh, the only, I suppose, thing from a Queensland point of view, though, that I think we need to acknowledge is that, you know, holding six seats has actually become the norm now. So, you know, it's sort of... We've, we've, in Queensland? Yeah, yeah. We've, we've picked up seats uh, in redistributions because of population growth. So, yeah, that, that... So we went down to two in 96 when Keating lost. But, you know, the, the apart from the, uh, the winning the seats when Rudd came to power in 07, it really has been sort of six or eight that we've had through that period of time. So, you know, it really isn't good enough. So, you know, 
you know, I want there to be a Labor government for all of Australia. I'd hate to see, and it's not impossible that there'd be a Labor government that wouldn't have a seat, you know, much past the north side of Brisbane. Uh, and I don't think that's a good outcome for the country and it's certainly not a Labor government that I would want to be part of. Um, so I, I think that there is in the interest of governing for all of Australia and I've got no doubt that a Labor government would be stronger if it did have strong voices from regional Queensland because they do represent uh, you know, communities that have been traditionally important to the country and I think can be really important into the future uh, and we want to continue to see that diverse population growth and for those people to get the opportunity you know, historically that they've had, uh, it's really a Labor government that are going to be the ones. I, I, when, when Bob Hawke sadly passed away, uh, I had to give a speech in the Senate, so I was thinking, you know, I, I looked at his legacy and I focused in on Queensland and you know, one thing which I didn't fully acknowledge is that basically it was under Hawke that all those regional Queensland universities opened up. So we had two universities, I think, when Bob Hawke won. Mm. And by the time he left, we had six. And all of those were from regional Queensland. Do you think about that? Like, how many Queenslanders, how many more Queenslanders would have had go at going to university from regional and remote Queensland because of what Hawke and Keating did yeah. by opening up that opportunity for them? So it's things like that that, you know, you know only Labor governments are going to do, but, you know, they'd be better able to do it if we've got those voices in those places that can actually articulate what are the needs for those communities. Uh, mayor Jenny Hill uh, was... She's the mayor of Townsville and just listening to her at that McCall Institute uh, session today, very passionate about her community, very passionate about the region that she lives in, a little bit critical of the types of candidates that Labor Party is selecting in those regions... Is that a part of the problem? Is that we're putting up the wrong people that don't reflect the the, the, the community in general? Yeah, I, I, um, Jenny is nothing if not blunt, as you would have got the experience. She was today. incredibly blunt. <laughs> I think I, I think I described her as two things. She's tenacious and consistent. Look, I don't want to be critical of the candidates that we ran. Uh, they were good people uh, and they did their best. Uh, I think one of the, just as an aside, one of the interesting things is in. Uh, Capricornia, which is Rockhampton and goes out west and takes in a lot of coal mining territory and has a lot of miners. We ran a third generation coal miner and got our worst result there for a long period of time. So um, just just to show you that, you know, like the, the sort of candidates and issues that we ran on yeah. you know, got overwhelmed by other things. Uh, so I don't want to be critical of other candidates, but I do think that, uh, and similar, I suppose I make this point to the inner city seats and, and I, I talked about Jed Carney before, but having the right personality that can win and hold seats in difficult environments, I think is something the party can be better at. Uh, and I think that applies to seats in the inner city. I think it applies to seats in regional Australia and regional Queensland as well. Uh, I think that there's... It's an interesting topic and one that obviously I've done a lot with as a party official, but you obviously want to have diversity in your candidates. I'm an ex-party official. You know, I, I think there's a role for party officials to run as candidates, but you don't want everyone to be party officials. You want union officials, but you want people from real walks of life as well. So I'd hate to think that you know, we're going to close off the door to people from other walks of life who've got a broad life experience but are new to politics. But the challenge in regional Queensland is that it is... Being a candidate up there is a really hard gig. You've got uh, daily media, you've got a daily newspaper, you've got daily TV newses, and we're chucking candidates in that for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I think that what we need to do is recognise that 
running in regional Queensland is different from running in suburbia where the only time you're going to get on the news as a candidate in suburbia is if you've stuffed up. Yeah. By then, probably the damage is done. Yeah. But in regional Queensland, you can get on the news every day. You can get in the paper every day. Um, yet, we sort of treat the candidates the same in terms of the training we provide them. So I think we need to have some long-term vision about who the candidates are, some work in the community about which ones are best able to represent the Labor Party and articulate the Labor values as they apply to that community. But the other thing I'd say, and, and I've looked back at the role Gough Whitlam played when he won in 72, uh, he showed some real leadership and, and got around to a lot of these places, identified who he thought would best represent those communities as part of his government, and he actually went out there amongst the party membership and campaigned for them mm. to get the pre-selection. So he didn't override any rules or anything like that. The local branch members had their say, but Goff spent time there. He campaigned with those people and said, this is the person I want. So I'd, I'd certainly be, and I will have this conversation with Anthony Albanese, but I think that we need the federal leadership of the party to play a closer role, and that's, you don't override branch members. That's not the case. But I think the branch members would be really respect the fact that Anthony was spending time in these places, he was talking to them about who the candidates were and identifying them and saying, look, you know, I think this person is someone who I can work with and we can put in a really strong showing here and win this seat. And because of the way the margins are now, there's some thick margins in some of those seats in regional Queensland, I think it is going to take that sort of effort for us to win some of those seats. So I certainly think we need to rethink it. I certainly don't want that to look like in any way I'm advocating we override branch members or union votes in that process. That absolutely needs to be part of it. But I think we need to be more robust and realistic about who are the ones who can win these seats because uh, it, is, it is difficult and we need to ensure that it's basically you know, the, the round pegs for the round holes in these places because um, they are a different challenge to running in a seat without the scrutiny that you'd get in regional Queensland. Uh, two questions on the back of that. What are your thoughts on uh, open primaries for pre-selection for candidates? And the second one is uh, give us your thoughts on how uh, strong or robust the party membership is in uh, regional Queensland. Yep. I've, I've traditionally been opposed to primaries because I think the membership model is one that suits us. And I think if you go to primaries, you're moving away from the membership model. Would, yeah. that, would you agree? Uh, you are fundamentally doing that, absolutely. You yeah, are rendering the membership yeah. Uh, yeah. pointless. Yeah, like the, the US Democrats don't really have a membership as such. They sort of rely on the sort of primary system to bring people in. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a believer in... Um, being membership-based, so I think that that is important. I do accept that there is a, a uh, that the prospect of engaging more people in your pre-selection process then gets gets more buy-in for people to become involved in the campaign, more volunteers. Therefore, you run a better campaign. So I'm not completely. Um, I haven't ruled it out and say never ever. But I, I still think we need to pursue the membership model at the moment, um, is, is my view. So uh, so how's it going then? That's my sort of, I guess that is the follow-up question. Yeah, look, uh, to be honest, Queensland is in a much healthier state than what we were when we lost government at the state level in 2012. So uh, there's, uh, I sort of, you've got me onto one of my favourite topics now. I know, I know a fair <laughs> bit about 
um, the history of the membership in Queensland. It'll be interesting to see if, if how this compares to Victoria, but in Queensland, the membership of the party actually grows when we're in opposition. So, uh, and it, it sort of grows in the response to external factors. So when Whitlam lost in 75, we had an influx of members, uh, including people like Wayne Swan and Kevin Rudd. Mm. Uh, in the lead up to Wayne Goss coming to power in 89, we had an influx of members from people who saw the opportunity of modernising Queensland that joined the Labor Party uh, through the late 80s. And then once Goss won, the membership sort of dwindled, you know, from 89 to 96 when he lost. And then in 96 to 98, we had Peter Beattie as opposition leader, but we also had Pauline Hanson on the scene federally. And the Labor Party in Queensland took a very principled stand that we would oppose Hansonism in every form. Uh, no one, no branch of the Labor Party did more to campaign against her. And we had an influx of people who wanted to join that fight and take the fight to Hanson. So we had an influx from 96 to 98. Then we won government and it sort of dwindled from 98 down to 12. And then we had the Campbell Newman effect where, mm. um, you know, we had so many people. We had a huge thousands of people join on the proviso of, you know, I've always been a Labor person, but I know you need me now after what happened. Uh, and I, 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 I think that we have sort of peaked and are coming down, but it hasn't been as dramatic as that. So we've still maintained a pretty good membership. And I think that the, the caucus, the state caucus in particular, and, and, well, federal Labor caucus in Queensland as well, we're particularly attuned to that and want to try and maintain that. So the state Labor government have been a good one and it's one that branch members... Uh, on the whole, have been supportive and happy with because they've delivered on issues, they've delivered on the platform, they've stuck the, f um, they've stuck the faith to it, which has been good. And I think that uh, federally it's been, you know, whilst we're small in number, um, I know the Senate team do its best to get around and cover off the branch membership throughout the state. There's one less of us now, which is um, another, another problem for us. And I certainly know that my other state, um, uh, my other federal members of the caucus as well um, do their best to sort of cover the state and ensure that we're out there listening. So it, it's, it's compared to where we were seven years ago, it is much healthier than what it is, uh, but it is, it is something that can dwindle in government and I think that we've got to continually look for ways to engage and improve, um, but I'm not quite at the primary yet, mm. um, but I certainly think that the pre-selection process um, needs to be as robust as possible and that we're encouraging candidates from all walks of life to put their name forward. In that 2012 state election in Queensland when I was up in Cairns, the, one of the takeaways I took from that, I'll phrase that better, was that we found it incredibly difficult to get branch members, the rank and file members of the Labor Party, to come and campaign. We struggled to fill booths. It wasn't as if there wasn't the members out there. They just did not want to come out. And at that time, so this is 2012, Obama had won in 08 and in 12, I don't know if that had happened or not. What month was the election in 2012? I think it was March. March, okay, so yes, definitely hadn't had the second election. But I'd had volunteered over in, in the States in 2008 and that's when the sort of the seed got first planted in my mind about the ways in which we could uh, engage the community, whether they were party members or not party members, to get involved in the political process and campaign for your party, in this case Labor. What cemented it for me was that campaign because we could not get people out to even to staff the booths. Um, and I thought that... And also then the natural thing is you go, oh, let's rely on the unions. 
And so I went around and spoke to all the local sort of regional secretaries, to which all of them told me to go, apart from one or two, go root a boot. Uh, now, that's not always going to be the case that there's those strained relationships between a long-term Labor government and the leadership of the rank and file and the, and the trade union movement. But I, what, what I took away from that was we can't always be heavily reliant on that and we need to broaden our volunteer base, to put it bluntly, but mm. to broaden our, our movement of activists and participants. Mm. Um, my question is, is that, yes, our me- and this is the same experience in Victoria as well, our membership does, uh, the Victorian branch membership does peak and, and trough. Mm. Um, but what we found from when we created the Community Action Network, the sort of the grassroots organising component of the party, 65% of those vo- volunteers are not members of the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. And that, was a, that essentially was our aim anyway. I never thought it would actually be that high. And that number's actually held up over election cycles. I thought that what would happen in, so in 2014, the first Daniel Andrews campaign, it was 65% of the mm-hmm. people that either knocked the door or made a call were not party members. I just assumed that a fair chunk of them would then join the party and over time that community action network would become majority Labor Party members. That's not the case. We've brought in new people and that, 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 that ratio is held up. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- my question to you is how are we going about activating people in those regions who may be party members but are we doing enough to get them involved in the, in the party in the ways that are most important to them? Because and there's, the great thing about the party is there is actually so many different ways you can get involved if policy is important to you yep. or if, you know, the admin or campaigns or whatever. How are we going about activating these people? Yeah, it, it, there, I think it would be fair to say that there's a, a, a vastly different culture in regional Queensland campaigning than there is in Brisbane or in Sydney and Melbourne. So Brisbane certainly has gone down more of the path of the, uh, the sort of field campaigning and... Uh, recruiting people, door knocking, etc., and I think that the demographics in the southeast Queensland lend itself more to that. There's obviously uh, more university kids who want to get involved in politics. The regional scenario is vastly different to that, and there isn't the long-term culture of that type of campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is different. So it is more a traditional sense of, you know, campaigning on issues, uh, trying to get media attention. And also you've got the geographic spread as well, that in often these seats that you've got to cover yep. sort of certain towns. Like, for instance, one practical thing that, that you know, I found through parts of this, there's a lot of shift workers. Um, there's a lot of um, people who sort of work, you know, two weeks on, one week off, three weeks on, one week off, and, you know, you don't want to phone them at the wrong time. You're mm. going to actually lose their vote. So yeah. there's practical things like that that don't quite lend themselves um, to that style of campaigning. And I think that... Part of the challenge in, in Queensland and regional Queensland is that I think some elections lend themselves to a big field campaign where they will make a significant difference. I think sometimes there's a little bit too much focus on the field because uh, the best field campaign doesn't matter if you don't have the strategy and the messaging Correct. right. That's definitely true. And I think that, that the last federal election is a pretty good example of that where... You know, my understanding is the sort of metrics approach um, was, you know, we knocked it out of the park or the result um, meant that we didn't mm. knock it out of the park. So I sort of think that sometimes I think that campaigning is an art and some people want to turn it into a science. I think that it's more of an art that science plays a role in mm-hmm. and I think that sometimes 
we get that balance wrong and it's one that I'm sort of attuned to that you know there, there does need to be creativity you don't want to lock up your candidates in a room making them make phone calls all day people need to see them out and about they need to see them at events they need to meet them they need to say to their friends oh no I saw her exit at the fate the other day and and I think she's fantastic and I think she'd be great and you guys should meet her etc so I just think that sometimes well I don't maybe it hasn't happened but I'm nervous that we're going to get that balance wrong and go too much down the science path and not enough, not enough down the art part of the way campaigns should be run. We should, have le- we should have opened the podcast with this topic because we could go on for this for about 20 minutes. I suspect we disagree on it. Uh-huh. Well, no, actually, I, look, the balance part, I completely agree with you on. Yeah, we definitely need to get the balance right. I think that um, the first point about culture, introducing direct voter contact and mobilising party membership to go speak to voters culturally is actually quite a new thing. And I think historically, if you look at the party over the last 120 years or whatever we've been around, um, talking to voters actually isn't culturally much different. But I think in the 70s, definitely the 80s and the 90s, television advertising, mail really started to replace the way that we directly communicated with the voting population. And... Uh, branch members or party membership kind of got subcontracted to do the chook raffles and handing out election day. So culturally, when we returned back to mobilising our membership and our supporter base to go speak to voters, I think that's actually quite a new thing. The cultural challenge that has been thrown at introducing field and mo- and organising. Uh, when I when we started doing this in 2012, 2013, I constantly heard from different people from different parts of Victoria. Oh, that sounds like an inner city um, kind of thing, Stephen. That's not going to work in the outer suburbs or if you go to the regions. Or oh, that sounds like a metropolitan Melbourne thing, Stephen, but that's not going to work in the regions. And the fact was, I think over the course of the last six and a half years of us doing that, it has worked. But you have to you have to nuance it to those communities. So the challenges that you just listed before are certainly, you know, those communities where there are shift workers. Yeah, you've really got to, you know, you've got to be adaptive, right? You can't just go, no, no, I need you to make these calls then or I need you to knock on these doors then. Mm. Uh, Good flexible campaigns should be able to create campaign opportunities for people to to volunteer around their times as well, not when we say you need to be here, otherwise they just won't won't bother coming back. Um, So I do think we are on the same page. But I, I thought it was interesting that, the, for example, the, um, the, the Bob Brown uh, convoy, which is amazing we've gone 43 minutes talking about Queensland and haven't mentioned this, mm-hmm. but to take, and I think I might have said this, I'm not sure if I said this on another podcast or if I've, I've said this privately, so to the listeners who have said this before, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, but if they had taken those, if they had taken the financial resources of all the people that were prepared to jump in a car for however many weeks to go to Queensland and said, just give us money to pay for maybe one or two community organisers and send them up 24 months beforehand and go and live in those communities and meet those workers and discover that you can't just um, decide to close a dirty mine today and therefore... And now you're just going to have to deal with that. Mm. But to get them to go in those communities and say, right, well, how about we all work together to try and identify some shared solutions together Mm. Um, and I think that's the beauty of what community organising or any organising really is Um, I want to get your thoughts on one that and two the what kind of ramifications did Bob Brown's 
crusade of stupidity have on the outcome in Queensland? Yeah, well, I, I described it as a criminal act against campaigning. So, uh, it it you know there's a there's a perception problem of in in regional parts of Australia, and I, I certainly know this is this is true in other places as well, of Labor's relationship with the Greens, and they see us. Uh, and conveniently so, and it suits the LNP to create this image as well, uh, as us being in lockstep with them. Mm. Uh, and it's one that you know, we have to break that nexus. Uh, we have to show that there is a difference between us and we have to show that we are uh, truly representative of regional Queensland and the, uh, regional Queensland and regional Australia uh, and the issues they confront. So uh, the frustrating thing is, I, as a senator, I obviously... I have to hear what Bob Brown, uh, what uh, Richard Di Natale and the Green Senators do. And, uh, you know, all they talk about in the Senate is Labor. Mm. You know, so they spend the majority of their time uh, campaigning against the Labor Party. And, you know, that is a significant problem for us that uh, we need to confront and we need to take it head on. And uh, we can't rely just on Anthony Albanese to do it. Or we can't rely just on Penny Wong to do it. Um, I, as a senator, need to step up, but uh, all the members of the caucus need to step up on that fight as well. I think in terms of the, the community organising, that uh, I think the, the first thing I'd say is that uh, from a campaigning point of view, I think that uh, if you, if you want to be a long-term campaigner uh, and have a role in the Labor Party as a campaign professional, uh, spending time... If you're from a city, spending time in a regional community campaigning and organising is invaluable mm. because you'll learn so much. So, I, you know, despite having a tough election result in Cairns, I'm sure you learnt a hell of a lot from from that. And Absolutely. You often, yeah, and, and you know, I, I spent a federal campaign in Herbert in Townsville in 2004 and uh, we suffered a bad result. But it's it's been an invaluable experience for me that I'll never forget and... You know, people who I employ when I was state secretary, um, I'd always, uh, in the lead up to them becoming a party official, I'd always ensure that they'd spent a campaign, either state or federal, in regional areas because uh, they do get a perspective of it. I, I think that there is uh, some strong potential there to um, better represent those communities. I think that what you need to guard against is um, sending people in to, and, and I think this is part of the Bob Brown problem, to sort of lecture those communities about why they are wrong and why we are right. Um, if you are going into those places um, because you want to help them transition into a better future and work with them with a long-term vision, then, you know, there is some potential to do that. I think, and, and just to reinforce this point, that, you know, these... The Labor Party is so vulnerable in these areas on short-term politics. The Liberal National Party, they don't want to solve these problems. They want to create them. They want to create divides because that suits them because mm. they think they are on the right side of these issues culturally. And in the short term, they are. And that's why we suffered at the election. But I'm confident in the long term. So it really is for us how we can adjust to ensure we can respond to the short-term challenges and not be vulnerable to scare campaigns while still maintaining the integrity of our long-term policy position. And we obviously got that wrong the election a couple of months ago. Uh, we've got the opportunity to get it right now. And it's important that uh, people from 
all parts of Australia and all Labor supporters from across Australia understand that, that there does need to be a rebalance uh, and there does need to be a consideration of the economic circumstances that we're in now and the fact that not everyone in Australia is doing as well as other parts of the country and that needs to be at the forefront of our decision making when it comes to the policy proposals that we take to an election campaign. That's a good segue into the National Campaign Review, which will look into some of the challenges that we had in the campaign and ways in which we can uh, identify solutions to move forward. You're on the review. Tell us a bit about uh, the process going forward. Um, and also, obviously, there's a lot of people that do listen to this uh, show that are party members and obviously would like to contribute in some way. Talk us through what's going to happen in the next couple of months. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. It's something that I obviously take incredibly seriously because... It is important that we get it right. Uh, we had our first meeting the week before last with Craig Emerson, former federal MP, and Jay Weatherall, former South Australian Premier, as, as the chairs. And the thing I left, and I didn't know Jay very well before the meeting, but I left that first meeting uh, absolutely convinced that they will do a good job. They're going to dedicate significant time and energy and effort to ensuring that they get it right. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to being part of it. Basically, there's, there's two things that we want to get right out of the review and I think that it's important for people to understand this so that they can contribute to it effectively. The first one is we want to ensure that uh, we can provide a concise but thorough report on how we lost the election so that everyone has a view, a theory about what went wrong so that everyone can read it and go, right, they've identified what I think happened, or I can understand what they've said here, I understand how that applied to the campaign. So you're just going to do screenshots of Twitter and put it into the document? A bit of that, yeah, a bit of that, <laughs> a bit of, bit of Twitterati on it. So I think that, that, you know, and I think that therefore, you know, there, there's often a lot of cynicism around campaign reviews, they're whitewashers or they're sealed sections or yeah. you know, all sorts of conspiracy theories amongst the branch membership, but I think that will be a really good starting spot. And I think that there's the sort of part B of that is that, uh, my view is that you release the whole report. It, you, know, you don't have any parts covered up or this part goes here. That'll be up to National Executive. But I think if you write the review in the context that this will be sent out directly and people can, everyone can read it, uh, I think it's a good starting spot. Hmm. And the second part is, it sort of is common sense, but you know, I think it's important that there's no point writing a review to say how we should have won the 2019 election, because the 2022 election is going to be vastly different. So what we need to do is say what went wrong, but we need to provide practical recommendations that are going to put the party and Anthony Albanese in a better position to win the 2022 election. So we need to learn those lessons, but we need to actually apply them to the future rather than being experts on what we could have done to win the last one. Correct. So that for me is basically the two key parts, is a concise reason as to how and why we lost, and then the second part is actually providing practical recommendations that if the party follows are going to put us in a much stronger position to win the next election. So there are, I think, the two key things. And I think that, you know, what I'm hopeful of, and, and I've picked this up, is that on the whole, people don't want to be negative or pessimistic. They want to be optimistic. But this gives them the, the opportunity to say, well, you know, I think we need to do this better and this is how I think we can do it better. And I think that will make for a much better review and serve the party much better at the same time. Is there an opportunity, uh, will you do open forums as you visit towns? 
Yeah, we're working through that at the moment, but there will be the opportunity to do open forums. Uh, we'll certainly cover off the key capital cities in each state. Uh, I think I've had a discussion with the Tasmanians about, you know, there's no point sort of going to Hobart. We're better off, you know, given that we lost the seats in mm -hmm. sort of Launceston on the northwest, that we'd, we'd sort of cover off there maybe. Yep. Uh, and I think that some of the other state secretaries will be keen for us to cover other parts of the state as well. So, yeah, so that, that will be uh, unveiled. Um, we're actually working on that at the moment, but I'd expect that to happen in late August, early September, before the submission option closes. Very good. Massive job. Before we wrap up, uh, a couple of things I need to um, just ask you. You've done a bit of research. The uh, Socially Democratic research team has been diving into your past. Um, first thing I'm uh, interested in knowing is I hear you're an elite squash player. <laughs> uh, I did have a, a uh, short squash career. Um, I uh, have played against uh, Jim Chalmers, the uh, member for Rankin, uh, and he's never, ever taken a game off me, and I think that's something <laughs> that, uh, that, still, um, that still haunts him. Um, but, uh, yes, I uh, haven't played much recently, although they do have some, um, some squash courts at Parliament they here do. in Canberra. Um, but there's been a lack of, lack of competition down there. Will there be a, maybe a monthly tournament between you and the member for Rankin? Uh, no, he's not competitive enough for me. So oh, that's not good. I, uh, I need more of a challenge uh, on the squash court than the member for Rankin. Um, how much money did you win on Sportsbet uh, for the 2007 federal election? Uh, me? No. I actually, as a party official, um, <laughs> never never bet. No, no, in all really? seriousness. No, no, I never... Uh, there's, a, there's a vicious rumour going around Canberra. Right, right. No, I know, I know of some other people who, uh, who, who did bet on the election campaign that uh, probably got a bit of... Uh, maybe got a few tips um, from someone in the know. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, no, I, I actually have a bit of a philosophical thing about being a party official and, and gambling on the election result because I think that, you know, similar to football, um, you don't want it to cloud your judgment on where you put resources at the same time. So. <laughs> That's a very good point. The, the 2007 election, from my memory, was... And I'm not a gambler by any stretch of the imagination. I have enough advices already. But that was back in the halcyon days of gambling when you in elections when you could do multis. So you could do... Race into race into race into race, and it could be like those dollar fives mm. of which Labor is always going to win. But mm. if you multiply them, eventually it turns out to be quite a good accumulator. Yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 uh, I do know about multis. I don't know about them in the election context. <laughs> I know about them. I'm not not opposed to gambling and been known to to bet on the horses every now and again. But yeah, I, uh, I generally, uh, genuinely do stay clear of the politics. When you go to Rome and visit the Roman Forum, as a senator, does it feel like your spiritual home? <laughs> I haven't actually made the trip there yet, so I'll have to, uh, I'll have, to have that on the bucket list to tick off uh, over the next couple of years. Um, but I certainly do, um, as someone who grew up as a Labor Party person, uh, served a long time as State Secretary, it is a real privilege to be a senator. Um, I think it sort of suits my skill set more than being in the House of Representatives in terms of you're not tied down to an electorate, you get to pursue issues, but you also get to sort of have more strategic long-term involvement, which I think, yeah, suits the background that I bring to the place. Uh, last week's uh, podcast with Richard Angel was mildly depressing, and this has been reasonably upbeat given the, uh, the nature of the topic we're speaking about, but I am going to bring it back down again because we're about to talk about the Carlton Football Club, a club <laughs> that is very close to your heart. Yeah. By way of background for you, I 
used to be a Carlton fan yeah. and quite a diehard Carlton fan. And I stopped the, the halfway through queuing up for the 1999 grand final ticket because I queued up in 95. I'd slept out at the front of the Northland shopping centre for two nights to get tickets. And I was disgusted that I had to do this. I just thought, because my background is Scottish, my football team is Celtic. If you want to get tickets for those kind of games, there's a balloting system that they do. And back in those days, for footy fans, you have to queue. Then I queued again in 99 and I said, you know what, I've had enough. I'm not doing this anymore. And I walked away. I'm very black and white in that sense. However, and I also want to point out that I think I am the curse. Because if you look at my time of following Carlton from 1980 to 1999, our win-loss ratio was far greater than from 19. 19- from 2000 to today. So I may be a curse. Having said that, can you please give me an update on how things are going for Carlton right now because I do not pay attention? <laughs> well, there's, there's a few things I'd say about that. And uh, I've got three beliefs in life. Uh, one's the Labor Party, one's the Catholic Church, and the other's the Carlton Football Club, and I was born into all three. So for me, if you can switch football clubs, then you can also switch political parties uh-huh. at the same time. So I, I've basically blackmarked you as someone who could easily wake up and be a liberal tomorrow. Oh no, if you I change football club. I do. I've not changed. I've walked away from the sport. You've walked away from football altogether. Altogether. Right. Right. Well, that is that experience. I'm aware of other um, political types who've switched football teams. That, that uh, is that is heresy. Yes, exactly. That is and absolute heresy. Scott Morrison um, hasn't got anywhere near enough scrutiny on his switching of football teams. Grew up. Eastern suburb Sydney Roosters fan. I did know that. To the Cronulla Sharks. Yes. Well, some of us who have a bit of a healthy obsession with this uh, <laughs> are there. Yes, I, I was born into the uh, the Carlton Football Club. I've stuck loyal. Uh, I've got three kids, um, so they're five, eight, and ten, and uh, I am uh, having a massive struggle converting them to be Carlton Football Club supporters, like my dad was. Uh, but we've actually had a good month on that front. So we've got a new coach in David Teague. Uh, I took uh, my kids to Sydney to watch Carlton play Sydney at the Sydney Cricket Ground and they watched Carlton have their first win uh, as well. So uh, we've got enormous faith in David Teague. Um, We play the West Coast Eagles on Sunday, so the reigning premiers. uh, And I think that if Carlton win that game, um, then David Teague will be assured to be the senior coach next year. Your first memory as a Carlton supporter? Uh, the 87 grand final uh, when Cutland won. Uh, Where'd yeah, you watch it? Uh, I watched it at home. Um, so I can remember that with my dad, who uh, he is also a Cutland supporter. And then I can remember uh, in 1993, uh, I was uh, 15 and I was working at the, a butcher shop uh, in suburban Brisbane, getting paid $4 an hour. And I remember I finished work and rode home uh, my bike home and watched Cutland lose the 93 grand final. That game actually was devastating as well. It was. Well, there's no doubt Soss touched the ball that Michael on kicked. And this, Am I, I right? See, when I see those score reviews now, I'm like, they need to go back to the 93 grand final because that could have been the tipping point. Absolutely. The turning point, I should say. Literally. If, uh, if that's there. So, yeah, look, I, I think, um, you know, being a Labor Party supporter... Um, being a Carlton person, it does teach you resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm certainly optimistic that uh, better times are ahead and I've got faith uh, in the current administration and I, I really hope that they do get that next coaching appointment right because I uh, am, have a lot of Tasmanian family, so I had high hopes for Brendan Bolton, but obviously that didn't work out. But uh, the next appointment will be important and uh, fingers crossed they get it right. 
uh, high hopes for the Carlton Football Club and high hopes for the Australian Labor Party going forward. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show today and having a bit of a chat to us about certainly um, amazing things that have uh, not sorry not amazing things but the, the the complex issues that are Queensland politics that I think a lot of people outside of that great state probably don't know too much about and we really appreciate your insights into that today um, and we wish you the best of luck not just with the campaign review coming up but also with your time as uh, a senator for the great state of Queensland and uh, we'll hopefully get you on the show in the near future. Thanks Stephen and, and thanks for chatting. I think uh, what's really important about the Queensland discussion and the, the federal discussion out of Queensland is that all Labor Party supporters and members I'm sure want to see a federal Labor government for the whole of Australia and I think it's important that you know, when they are involving themselves in their local branch or their local campaign, that they do have that in the back of their mind about you know, what we're trying to achieve in other parts of the country and where it fits into their little jigsaw puzzle in suburban Melbourne or suburban Adelaide or regional Victoria. And I've got no doubt that it can be successful, but I think if we're all just conscious of the different demands that we've got, that we'll be a much more harmonious party, but we'll be a much better Labor government into the future as well, and that's what we all want to achieve. Hear, hear.